0: Evening everyone? After- is it afternoon or evening? I never quite know. Is. It's definitely afternoon, is it? In my head, this is still the evening service, so I never quite know what's going on. Well, thanks so much for joining us. I'm really, I really—I love this one, because I think this, is, um, this session sort of highlights, I think, where often our blank spots are in terms of our Bible knowledge. So we, I think Phil put it well this morning. You've heard of Adam, you've heard of Noah, you've uh, heard of Abraham, you've heard of Moses... Yet Phineas is probably the most important person in the Bible you've never heard of, okay? And I want to try and persuade you that today. So today we're going to cover the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy, the end of the Pentateuch. And um, and largely Phineas is like the high point, um, high point of it. So uh, you've got that to look forward to. So where are we? Well, let's try and... Um, Recap. Uh, remember, we're in the wilderness. So uh, we just had Exodus and Leviticus and, and God's people are still gathered on Mount Sinai. They're no longer slaves in Egypt, but neither are they yet in the promised land. They have been saved, but they're not yet saved. It's, it's a bit like that tension we we're thinking about this morning. Uh, the rescues behind them, but also the rescue sort of ahead of them as well. They're in this uh, strange place. And so they're, they're in the middle. Um, the byword for that is sojourners. They're temporary travelers and this book of numbers if you if you turn there with me in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 1 Book of Numbers kind of has a bad rep because of the early chapters of it and the fact that it's called Numbers uh, it doesn't sound particularly exciting does it It just kind of sounds like a snooze fest um, because it's large, you know the early chapters are largely about counting how many of God's people there are and you think well skip that um, but we can see why we shouldn't in a moment. But uh, let me read verse one, chapter one, verse one. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the desert of Sinai on the first day of the second month of the second year after the Israelites had come out of Egypt and so on and so forth. So this book's called Numbers, but in the Hebrew, it's called In the Wilderness, which is a much cooler title, isn't it? So if, you want to, if you've got your own Bible there, you can scrub out Numbers and call it In the Wilderness, because that's what this, what this book is about. And the reason that's so cool is, of course, that's where we are. We are in the wilderness. We are sojourners. The rescue is behind us, but we're not yet in the promised land. We're in the middle. And, and so 1 Peter, of course, says that we're, uh, we are sojourners, temporary travellers. We're exiles in this land. Um, so where are we then? Well, if you want to fill in this box... Um, who are, where are we at this point? Well, God's people are, are a nation and they, they're a large, large number we're going to see in a moment's time. Um, God's place, well, it is still the promised land, but they're not yet there. They're not yet there. They're no longer in Egypt, hooray, but they're not yet in the land. And But God's presence is still with them. And last time we saw about he, how he gave his people the law, how he gave his people the tabernacle, how he gave his people the feasts and festivals. God is very much with his people um, at this time, and so god 's people are therefore both enjoying redemption and awaiting uh, redemption and that 's much like us as we uh, as we say, so along the way in our in our christian life there 's going to be hardship there 's going to be difficulty, and yet all along the way, as we 're going to see in numbers, and Jesus told me, God provides uh, God um, keeps us going but there 's another tension we 're going to see today is that there 's something of a tension between the covenants and what I want you to do is turn to the person next to you and do your best to try and explain this diagram and try and remind each other what on earth is going on here this is a good recap and why is there attention for this people that's the question I want you to answer why, why are they experiencing attention at this point okay go to the person next to you well let's come back together there so do you remember how God promised to Abraham unconditionally that this people would inhabit that land. He, he, he said, because of your obedience, it, we're going to be on in perpetuity for your people. This, this promise, you will inhabit this land. However, last time, there was a tension because the Mosaic Covenant, um, God said, well, uh, you're in the land freely by grace, but to stay in the land, you've got to obey. And so the question is, well, God has promised the land, but it, it seems conditional on their, on, the, on their ability to keep the law. And that is the tension, really, throughout the book of Numbers. How can they do it, essentially, is the question we should be asking. Great, so let's flip over the page and um, let's launch into the book of Numbers. Because, to begin with, they make a very good start. A very good start, indeed. Um, in the early chapters, Moses counts all of the fighting men amongst Israel... And they number us around about 600,000. So look at chapter one, of verse 46. We're told the total number was 603,550, which is massive. Do you, do you remember at the beginning of Exodus, there were just 70, just 70 adults. And now they're, that's just the men. They haven't, they haven't counted the women or, or the children. This is a nation. And we're thinking, yeah, God's promise to Abraham. It's all coming about. God is good. He's keeping his promises. God is being faithful to his covenant. And um, as Numbers goes on, it, it gives very vivid descriptions of how God's people were camped at this time at Mount Sinai. And I've got a picture here to kind of show you. You've also got a diagram on your sheets. Um, so you've got uh, three tribes north of the tabernacle, three tribes south of the tabernacle, three, uh, three tribes uh, to the left of the tabernacle, three tribes to the right of the tabernacle. And, um, and then you've got that all around the middle... You've got the Levites who kind of act as like a a buffer zone for God's holiness, because right in the middle is God's tabernacle. That's where God dwells with His people, His holiness in that in the tent of meeting there. But the, 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 the reason the priests are around the tabernacle is is to is to prevent God's holiness from consuming the people. They're they're there to preserve God's people, to keep God's people, to offer sacrifices. Uh, for God's people, uh, because God is, is not safe. He is so holy. There needs to be a means by which he can still dwell with his people. And, and this is true even on the move. So when um, we're given descriptions of, of how they are to travel, and um, when they're travelling from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land, you see from the bottom of this diagram, the tenor meeting was to be in the middle, and, and, that, and all that stuff was carried by, by the Levites again. And all the other tr- six tribes before, six tribes behind. And so you get the idea that God's holiness is, is almost um, uh, protected by the Levites, but also that the unholiness of the people, the uncleanness of the people, uh, it, that they're protecting the people from God's holiness too. You see how important the Levites are, the Levites are uh, in this description. It's like a holy buffer zone. And so, um, you know, you flip through the pages, the early chapters of Numbers, it, it begins kind of well as various uh, laws are given and, and the descriptions of the Levites are given. They, they celebrate the Passover uh, for the first time since leaving Egypt. And that's a great moment for them. It, it all begins really, really well. And then in chapter 10, the cloud of the cloud, uh, which represents God's presence, um, moves onwards, indicating that God's people should now leave Mount Sinai and begin this journey to the promised land he's promised them. And so this good start almost immediately turns into a rather depressing decline. Everything goes wrong pretty much from this point onwards. Um, and, and throughout the book of Numbers, we kind of see four things happening repeatedly. Um, it's like in cycles over and over and over and over and over again. These four things, we see people rejecting God. We see them rejecting Moses. We see them rejecting the promised land and we see them embracing sin. So what I'm going to do is give you some examples of those rather than sort of go through the whole book in detail. So look at chapter 11 with me. And let me read that for you. It says this. Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. And when he heard them, his anger was aroused, then fire from the Lord burned out from among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord and fire died down. So that place was called Tibera because fire from the Lord had burned among them. He goes on, the rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also, the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna, this bread, which God has given. It's, it's comedy, isn't it? God has done this amazing, miraculous rescue. They almost immediately, they're just grumbling and, and complaining about the food. They expected life to be easier, didn't they, as they travelled to the Promised Land. They thought that it would be great the whole time. And so what do they, they wanted to go back. They wanted to return to slavery. Why? Because the cucumbers were so good. The fish was free. They, they want to go back to slavery. It's It's madness. And so the pattern throughout all of these grumblings, which happen again and again throughout Numbers, is the people complain. God judges them and you sort of have fire consumed some of them. But then Moses intercedes. Moses acts as this like priestly character who sort of intercedes for the sinful people to God and, and, and sort of makes peace again. And, and then there's a, a, once again, a, that's what happens. Um, and so there's, a, there's another example, isn't there? If you, in um, A very famous example of chapter 21, where again the people complain and God sent serpents among them um, and loads of them die and then uh, Moses intercedes and God tells them to, to put a bronze serpent on a pole and anyone who looks to the bronze serpent will be saved. Do you see the same pattern again and again? And of course Jesus in John chapter 3 refers to that, doesn't he? So he says, just as that serpent was lifted up on the pole, so I will be lifted up from the earth. And whoever looks to me will be saved. That's a very familiar uh, pattern. It's worth us recognising, isn't it? In, when we're in the wilderness, as we're in the wilderness now, we're going to be tempted to the same thing. We're going to be tempted to look back and think, maybe my life was a bit better before I put my trust in Jesus. Why don't I just carry on doing this sin. Why don't I carry on living the old way? Why don't I go serve Pharaoh again? Is that temptation in our hearts, isn't it? And these, these passages serve as a warning to us. Um, we need to trust God and be grateful for his daily bread and not grumble and complain that life is you know, hard, and it is hard. Um, the next thing which we see is uh, a rejection of Moses. And this happens again and again and again. Let me give you an example. Uh, turn to chapter 16. And this is the very famous uh, Korah rebellion. Um, I was quite excited. I was telling Nathan about this earlier. In verse 1, one, one of the people, well, I'll just read it. Korah, son of Izhar, son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and certain Reubenites, Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab and On, son of Peleth, became insolent. And they rose up against Moses with them were 250 men, well-known community leaders who had been appointed to members of the council. They came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them. And the Lord is with them. Then why do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? I was joking earlier, if ever Nathan is being insolent, I think we should call him Dathan. Dathan, that, 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 that's a good name for him, isn't it? But if you see their desire here, it's not fair that there should be Moses and Aaron as these mediator types. We, you know, we want equality. Surely everyone can approach God. We're all holy. We can all, why can't we all approach God in any way we like? They, they, they don't like this idea that there's just one person to mediate for them. Why do we want that? They want direct access to God without Moses. And there's various other rebellions like this. It, it, even um, Aaron at one point rebels against Moses and, and Aaron's sister, Miriam, rebels uh, against Moses. And again, on each occasion, what happens? Well, there's a rebellion. God's wrath comes out. Moses then intercedes for the people. And again, there's peace again, um, over and over, and over again. Um, they also reject the promised land. Uh, so turn with me to chapter 13. So very quickly, they're right on the edge of the promised land. And they, um, Moses sends spies to check out the land. So look at verse 27. So that the spies come back. And this is the report they give. Verse 27. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. I love this, um, this painting. Um, sort of showing this enormous of, uh, bunch of grapes on, um, on, on, a, uh, on a stick. And, and that's, that's the picture here, this enormous weighty fruit. This is a fruitful, fruitful, good land, like the land of Eden, a land flowing in milk and honey. But it goes on, verse 28. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites lived in the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites lived in the hill country and the Canaanites near in the sea along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. So it's a great land. And Caleb's like, yeah, let's do it. Come on, let's go. Let's go. The Lord's with us. What could possibly go wrong? But then some of the other spies give a bad report of the land uh, look at verse 30. Sorry, verse 31. But the men who had gone up with Caleb said, we can't attack these people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our, in our eyes and we looked the same to them. Do you see They're just not happy with this good land God had given to them? And so they spread this bad report. And as a, as a result, you see in chapter 14, God's people rebel and then judgment comes. And then guess what happens? Moses intercedes. It's the same pattern again and again and again. And so the result of that judgment is we're told in verse 20, and this is really significant. Verse 20, the Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me 10 times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. And uh, go look on verse 34. For 40 years, one year, for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. And so God's judgment is that the entirety of that generation died in the wilderness. Not one of them saw the promised land apart from Caleb. Even Moses, even Aaron, as we're going to see later, didn't get to see the promised land because they, they rejected this land. And that's why there's this 40 year delay in the wilderness. It's not because it's literally a 40 year journey. They're going around in circles. The Lord wouldn't let them go into the land because he wanted that first generation to die off. The other, the other thing we see cycling again and again and again is this embrace of sin. And so um, in chapter 22, uh, God's people are just about to enter the promised land. And um, the adjacent, um, the, one of the lands I had to go through is called Moab, um, which is the descendants of Lot. You might remember Lot, Abraham's nephew. And uh, the king of Moab is a guy called King Balak. And he's terrified of this enormous nation about to come in and take the land, uh, take their land. And so what he does, he, 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 he hires a mercenary prophet, a guy called Balaam, or Balaam, as I like to call him. And um, Balaam is a, is, is a great uh, story. Turn with me to chapter 22. Because King Balak hires um, Balaam for money to say, basically, what I want you to do is curse these people. They're about to enter the land. Obviously, I don't want them to do that. And I want you to curse them. So here's some cash. Do a good curse on them. And then maybe we'll, we'll beat them in battle. That's, that's the plan, at least. But it's hilarious, because every single time that Balaam opens his mouth in order to try and curse God's people, instead, out comes a blessing. <laughs> God puts the, these other words in his mouth. Uh, which is hilarious. So um, look at verse, uh, uh, let's pick it up, verse 5, um, 4b. So Balak, son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messages to summon Balaam, son of Baal, who was at Pethor, near the river Euphrates, in his native land. Balak said, a people have come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the land of a settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people because they're too powerful for me. Perhaps then I'll be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that whoever you bless is blessed and whoever you curse is cursed. Does that language sound familiar to you? The Abrahamic covenant. That's right. And so what happens? Well, every time um, Balaam opens up his mouth, out comes blessing. And so um, one of the other is, there's the famous example, isn't there, of, of, of Balaam uh, trying, trying to get his donkey to go to uh, God's people that he might pronounce the curse on them. Um, but uh, the angel uh, stops him in his tracks. Let's look at, what I want you to do is just uh, in your pairs, look at verses 18 uh, through to 24. Sorry, cha- yeah, tw- chapter 24, I was in the wrong chapter. And look at verses uh, 3 to 9. And as as you read that in your pairs, or your groups, what resonates with you? What language is familiar to you? okay. From verses 3 to 9. Would you like me to read it to prevent us all reading it in our heads? Does that make, make sense? Good. The prophecy of Balaam, son of Beor, The prophecy of one whose eyes see clearly. The prophecy of one who hears the words of God. Who sees a vision from the Almighty. Who falls prostrate and whose eyes are opened. How beautiful are your tents, Jacob. Your dwelling places, is Israel. Like valleys they spread out. Like gardens beside a river. Like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. Waters will flow from their buckets. Their seed will have abundant water. Their king will be greater than Agag. Their kingdom will be exalted. God brought them out of Egypt. They have strength of a wild ox. They devour hostile nations and break their bones in pieces. With their arrows, they pierce them. Like a lion, they crouch and lie down. Like a lioness who dares to rouse them. May those who bless you be blessed. And those who curse you, be cursed. Right into your groups. What, what's familiar there from that language, from what we've seen throughout this series so far? Just shout out. Any, anything resonate from what we've seen so far in the series? From uh, This is an attempted curse. Ends up badly. Ends up being a blessing, doesn't it? <laughs> um, brilliant. Yeah, they, it says, and it doesn't say they're going into Eden. It says they are like Eden. Interesting, isn't it? Um, what, anything else? Blessings and, curses. Blessings and curses. Yeah, brilliant. So that's from Abraham. Um, and we see here, it's just God is, God is clearly devoted to ensuring his people are blessed, isn't he? God is keeping that promise uh, to Abraham. Anything else? Yeah, yeah. And the other thing about the end of Genesis, God's um, promise to Judah, is that it's a promise of the king. And you see that, don't you, at the end of verse 7. Their king will be greater than Agag. And that's interesting because Israel doesn't have a king at this point. They have a tribe of Judah, but there's no king. Um, so that's a little hint. That's perhaps um, what, what might come later. Of course, God is their king at this point. Anything else? Verse 5. How beautiful are your tents, Jacob. What does that remind you of? It, it, yeah, it might remind you of that. I was thinking of um, God's coming with Noah. Do you remember how he promises um, that the... Um, the Japhethites, the Gentiles, will come to be blessed because of, they come into the tents of Shem. I wonder if that's a little hint to that there. Anyway, so there's a lot of little hints. Do you see that? I just want you to see there's lots of intertext, intertextuality, lots of sort of hyperlinks going, going all, all over the place here. Um, it's good fun reading the Bible with this, this sort of thing. Okay, so immediately after um, this uh, attempted curse, complete failure ends up in massive blessing. Um, there ends. Balaam actually ends up giving seven blessings <laughs> on uh, on Israel. So I don't. I don't really think. I don't think um, our man Balak got his money's worth. Um, um but Satan gets him in another way. So in chapter twenty five, look at verse. Uh, let's look at the first few verses there. While Israel was staying in Shittim, doesn't sound like a great place, does it? Where do you live, Shittim? While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifice to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And the, and the Lord's anger burned against them. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of these people, kill them and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to Israel's judges, each of you must put to death those of your people who have yoked themselves to Peor. Then an Israelite man brought into the camp a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel well, they're weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Do you see the stark contrast? God's just devoted himself to blessing his people, going out of his way, it seems, to ensure a sevenfold blessing on his people. And the very next thing is that the Lord's people then yoke themselves to Baal, as this sort of painting indicates. They, uh, they, they worship their gods, and it's a fertility gods. So it's basically just mass prostitution, a big orgy, essentially. They, they they change their gods. They yoke themselves, and the Murbite women uh, lead them astray. It's an absolute disaster, and as a result, a huge plague comes on God's people, and many of them die. And no one seems to care for for God's holiness anymore. Now, this is now the, the big turning point, um, because uh, something now happens which transforms the direction of travel. If, if we were to put a, a, a graph uh, to um, what's happening, uh, a spiritual sort of state of God's people, throughout, so far throughout the book of Numbers, it's just down and down and down, isn't it? And, um, and it's, it's, it's getting worse and worse and worse. But now something happens. So let's read on. Now we meet Phineas. Verse 7. When Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and followed the Israelite into the tent. This is the one who's having it off with a Midianite woman right outside the tent of meeting, where God is. Okay? He left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and followed the Israelite into the tent. He drove the spear into both of them, right through the Israelite man and into the woman's stomach, then the plague against the Israelites was stopped for those who died in the plague. Number 24,000 goes on. The Lord said to Moses, Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites. Since he was as zealous for my honor among them as I am, I did not put an end to them in my zeal. Therefore, tell him I am making my covenant of peace with him, he and his descendants will have a covenant of lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honour of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. I love this uh, image of this account. Um, whoever, whoever anonymous, whoever designed this, like, it really worked on the musculature of the of the Israelite man, didn't he? <laughs> He's absolutely, like, you've got his buttocks just right. And um, it's quite graphic. But here's Phineas, that long spear, driving it through the Israelites and then through into the Midianite woman. And I think that's, po- that's poignant because, of course, we, told, we were told in the previous passage that God's people had yoked themselves, binded themselves, united themselves with these false gods. And I guess there's an irony in this judgment, isn't there? As he literally pins them together with the spear. It's brutal. Um, but this great act of um, justice, that, that this man is flagrantly doing this before the Lord, he's doing it in sight of all the people. He's not hiding around. He's doing it to boast of, of, his, of his freedoms. Um, and yet what Phineas does uh, triggers a new covenant. God promises, because of you, Phineas, there's always going to be a priesthood. Phineas's actions here might sound violent, but it actually saved a whole people. Because of this, the plague stopped. Loads of people were saved. Many died, but many, many more were saved uh, because of what he did. And so, uh, just like uh, with Noah and with Abraham, uh, and this diagram becomes familiar again, this sort of covenant, because of Finis's uh, obedience, there's now on in perpetuity a covenant of priesthood. Um, there's always going to be a priesthood for God's people. There's always going to be someone to intercede for God's sinful people. And that becomes significant later. We won't turn there now, but in Malachi chapter 2, the priests after the exile are hopeless again. They're offering hopeless sacrifices. And, and God says, I'm not accepting this. You're offering me blind and lame animals. You're giving me the worst. You know, you're know, just giving me the, the, the offcuts. Uh, I'm not, you know, you're a hopeless priests, But he says, because of the, the covenant I made with Phineas, because of my covenant with Levi, there will always be a mediator before you. Um, so even though there's later sin and later uh, generations, there's on in perpetuity. And this really is the big turning point in, uh, in the book of Numbers. Um, so there we are. So even though, as we see, God's people are breaking God's covenant, that Mosaic covenant. They should, the curse should be falling upon them because God institutes this covenant with Levi. It keeps them going. There's always going to be a mediator before them. Turn to the person next to you and buzz for a few minutes and we'll have a bit of Q&A. Once, uh, so I don't know what questions have been popped up there. So turn to the person next to you. Ollie's got our first question. Yeah, so Ollie's question is, why isn't it called the Phineatical Covenant? Why is it the Levitical covenant? I, yeah, I think it's, it's simply that. Um, also, later, if you turn with me to Jeremiah 33, um, Jeremiah picks up on this covenant as one of the most significant. Um, and he's doing his survey. Um, if you look at chapter 33... Uh, verse 20, we look to this passage when we look to the Noahic covenant, but verse 20, this is what the Lord says, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that's the Noahic covenant, so the day and night no longer come at their appointed time, well, then he, my covenant with David, my servant, and my covenant with the Levites, who are priests ministering before me, can be broken, and David will no longer have, may have a descendant to reign on my the throne. So you see, it's referred to as the Levitical covenant, my covenant with the Levites. Um, so I think that's why, yeah. Um, so Loz pointed out on, on, my, on my diagram here that the Abrahamic and the Levitical are sort of conjoined and also conjoined with the, the new covenant later. That's because they're all kind of the same type of covenant. They're, they're royal grants. Um, they're blue. So um, you're in by uh, Noah's obedience or Abraham's obedience or uh, Phineas' obedience or Christ's obedience, as we're going to see. Then on by grace in perpetuity for all those in union uh, with him. That's different to the Adamic and the Mosaic, which are the Vassal treaties. The other distinction is, you notice, the, the first two are cosmic covenants. That is, that they're with all creation. Um, the Adamic, the Noahic, it, it's that they're, they're very broad, whereas Abraham uh, to the Davidic covenants are national covenants. They're just for Israel. Um, the new covenant is for Jews and Gentiles, so it kind of broadens out again. Yeah, Does that make sense? It's not. I'm aware. It's not. The, it's not the most straightforward diagram, <laughs> but it's the best I could do. Yeah. A good question. I think it's a really important question. Um, I should. I should have that. Um, <laughs> um, so the question was uh, when you know Caleb's one of the spies, and one of the other ten spies, it's Joshua and Caleb said this is a good land, um, and the other ten said uh, no, we can't beat these guys. It wasn't so much they were lying. They both said the same thing. Um, Caleb said yeah, there's strong enemies there. Sons of Anak are there. Um, it's a good land, land flowing milk and honey, but you know, but we can take them, we can take them. They said, they, they, they didn't say, no, it's not a good land. They said, we're not going to take this land because they are giants there. They're, they're descendants of the Nephilim. We, no way we can do that. Um, so they, they're, Caleb was real. Yep, giants, but great land. Come on, we can take them. They, were just, they, were, they were just doubted God's ability to give them victory there. So they didn't yeah, they didn't say it's yeah, it's 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 awful. It's just a car park, this land, there's nothing green there. You know, they didn't lie. They they, they just they said we just don't think we can take it. So, they, so the issue is trust. They didn't trust God. Whereas Caleb did, he had a different heart in him. Hmm. Thank you, James. So, so thank you. That's a helpful correction. Um so James has picked up that actually they they said the land swallows up its people. I always read that as the people, you know, this, these people who are going to fight us in battle. Are going to swallow us up? Um, but actually, yeah, it could be that they are distorting. Um, they are lying. Yeah. So maybe Caleb did say something. It's just not recorded. Yeah, don't know. Shall we have a break there. If you want to um, stretch your legs a bit, stand up, get a glass of water, um, and then we'll continue. We'll continue on to into Deuteronomy after the break. All right. So then. Um, so as I, as I mentioned, this uh, this diagram here, so things now get better, okay? Because that first generation died and, uh, we're now, and things are now going to get better. And so immediately after this Phineas episode, God um, tells Moses to conduct a second census. And you see that in chapter 26. And um, look at the results of this census. It's quite interesting. Uh, verse 64, near the end, page 124. We're told... Uh, that there are now 601,730. And this is the, the verdict. Not one of them was among those counted by Moses, Aaron, the priest, when they counted the Israelites in the mountain of, uh, on the desert of Sinai. For the Lord had told those Israelites they would surely die in the wilderness, and not one of them was left except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. So you look in that box there, you might think, oh, no, it's slightly fewer numbers. 601, well, that's, that's about 2,000 less than the first census. You might think, oh, that's a bit disappointing. But the whole point is, no, no, there's no overlap. <laughs> there's no overlap between the, the numbers there. That's 601,730 brand new people who weren't even alive the first time there was a census of, of fighting men. So this is a miracle. Um, God can make a people out of nothing. <laughs> it's a, a sort of in, in a generation. that That's how fruitful... Um, God's people were. All of them are new. And so that, that's the second census shows us God can start again. And so the conquest begins in earnest. Uh, if you flip over to chapter 33, um, we, uh, we find God's people right on the boundaries of, uh, of the promised land. And then just as they're about to go in, God gives them this charge. Chapter 33, verse 50. On the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you cross the Jordan and into Canaan, drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you. Destroy all, the, uh, all their carved images and all their cast idols and demolish all their high places. Take possession of the land and settle in it. For I've given you the land to possess. Distribute the land by lot according to your clans etc, etc, etc. So God basically says, "Here's the land, it's yours, but you must you must, you must drive out the serpents." That's what Adam and Eve felt to do, wasn't it? Here's the land. It's, it's a good land. Don't listen to the serpent. God and keep the, the, God, the temple sanctuary, the Eden sanctuary, but they listened to the serpent. And now God says, "You're going to the land. It's free. Here it is. You must drive out the serpents." If you don't, they're going to tempt you. And um, I think it's significant. You might have noticed already that any time we've had interactions with, with members, of, with people in the promised land, um, Sion, king of Og, and, 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 and people like that, they're described as the descendants of Anak or the Nephilim. Do you Does anyone remember who the Nephilim are? The giants. The giants. And, who, and who are The giants. The offspring of, the, of those fallen angelic beings and, and the daughters of men uh, is literally, you know, in their, in their genetics. That's why they're all giants like, uh, like Goliath, I'm going to see later. That, there's, um, the, that initial rebellion in chapter six, this is the, the, the fruit of it um, and those afterwards. And so they've they got to drive out these serpents. And that now leads us into uh, the book of Deuteronomy. And the book of Deuteronomy uh, literally means the second law, Deuteronomos, the second law. Because essentially it's, it's a retelling of the law to this new generation. They weren't there at Mount Sinai. They didn't hear they didn't make that covenant. Remember, the blood splattered on them. They weren't there. And so the covenant needs to be remade uh, for this people. And so the book of Deuteronomy is essentially like a sermon um, with the uh, um, Moses preaching to this people as they're just about to enter the promised land. And I don't know if, if you want someone to say to you, what is the, the theologically most important book of the New Testament? You might say Romans. You know, Romans captures so much meaty theology, doesn't it? If you're going to ask what's the most theologically significant Old Testament book, I'd argue it's Deuteronomy. Um, it, it captures so much, uh, it, which is crucial to understand. Um, about how we understand how the Bible works and how it fits together. So to begin with, um, God is faith, God's faithfulness to the past generation is reviewed. And we're given like a previously in the Pentateuch, chapters 1 to 3. And um, we're given a little recap of what's gone on there. Uh, but then the Mosaic covenant, God's covenant with Israel, with Israel is, is renewed. So look at chapter 7. I'm in the wrong book. Here we go. Deuteronomy chapter seven and verse six. And as I read this in a moment, I'm going to get you to go into your pairs again and just ask yourself what is the tension here. Verse six: For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be His people, His treasure possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you or choose you because you were more numerous than the other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath, he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand, redeemed you from, that, from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. But to those who hate him, he will repay their fate by destruction and he will be not to be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. Therefore, take care to follow the commands, decrees and laws I give you today. What's the tension there when you go into your pairs again? The tension there is that God made a, made a promise on oath to Abraham's offspring that they will possess this land. The tension is that they must keep the law in order to remain in the land. And, 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 that's, and, that's, uh, um, and that's, that's what happens um, as this uh, Mosaic covenant is renewed. This tension is, is getting more and more explicit. Um, the law is also expanded and elaborated on. Um, so, for example, in chapters 17 and 18, which is the, the very middle of the book, um, God gives specifically more laws for the future. There are laws for kings that have a king yet. There are laws for kings for when they come along. There are laws for priests and there are laws for prophets. And those laws are really, really important, particularly as we come to 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, to understand how people failed later. Um, it's, uh, the law is, um, God has high expectations for Israel's leaders in particular. Um, it's a, if you look at chapter 18, verse 15, there's a very important promise there. In giving these laws to the um, laws for prophets, he says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. So at some point Moses is going to die, but God promises one day there's going to be a prophet like you, a prophet like Moses. And so ooh, who's that? Who's that going to be? And uh, it's, it's an un, sort of a bit of a mystery to follow. So then, God then says well if you obey my law it's going to be blessings if you disobey it's going to be curses and, and the way God portrays this to his people is really vivid I don't know if you can see on this map if you sort of zoom in God's people aren't yet in the land but he says when you take the land there are two mountains in the land um, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim and what I want you to do when you take the land is to go in I want you to split in half um, half the tribes are going to stand on one mountain the other half are going to stand on the other mountain and the Levites are going to stand in the valley in the middle. And what I want um, you guys to do is um, I want the guys on one mountain to shout uh, at the other uh, at the other mountain. And I want the guys on the other mountain to shout at the other mountain. What are they to shout? Well, look at chapter 28 with me. Chapter 27, sorry. They're called the two mountains of witness because this will act as a witness against them should they break this covenant. Um, so you see there, chapter 27, the, the heading, Curses from Mount Ebel. So all those on Mount Ebel would shout out the following curses. Look, for example, verse 15. Curses anyone who makes an idol. And, and, and all those on the other mountain would have heard this shout. And, and, but in chapter 28, they, the other crowd shout as well. And, and they shout blessing of all the things which would happen if they obey God's covenant and keep the land. And as you look through these various different curses and blessings, which are really, really important chapters, um, you see the same um, repetition of all those themes in Genesis chapter 3. God's people will, be, will either be blessed if they obey him, their wombs will be blessed, or they'll be cursed. Their wombs will be cursed. Uh, their, their ground will be blessed, with fruitful, or will be thistles and thorns. Um, God's presence will be with them if they if they obey, or they'll be exiled eastwards. Blessings or curses, depending on on, on how they do. And I love this painting; which sort of captures the idea. Which mountain would you want to be on? <laughs> you know, it's uh, one one mountain representing just death and and, and thistles and thorns and curse. And, and this other mountain representing life and vibrancy because of obedience. Choose life, essentially. Choose life. So what this all exposes, and, and the, the way Deuteronomy ends is, is really in chapters 29, what it exposes is that what God's people really needs are new hearts. Because the whole, whole episode in the wilderness has kind of exposed that God's people, they have the law, they have God's good law, but they don't yet have hearts which are able to obey it. They, 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 they don't have the Holy Spirit yet, essentially. The law is good, but it doesn't have the power to save them. And so uh, look at um, chapter 29 and verse 4. Moses ends his sermon saying this, verse 4, But to this day the Lord has not given you a mind that understands or eyes that see, or ears that hear. But basically he's saying, you can't do it. You can't obey this law. It's not within your, your capacity. And so he says, essentially, exile will happen. Chapter 21 is a prophecy of what's going to happen. Uh, look at verse 24 over the page. So basically says, you're going to go into exile. Verse 24, all the nations will ask, why has the Lord done this to the land? Why this fierce burning anger? And the answer will be, it is because this people abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the covenant he made with them when he brought them out of Egypt. They went off and worshipped other gods and bowed down to them, gods they did not know, gods he did not give them. Therefore, the Lord's anger burned against this land, so that they brought on it all the curses written in this book. In furious anger and in great wrath, the Lord uprooted them from their land and thrust them into another land. As it is now, they can't, they, you know, even now we see the prophecy, the prophecy of the exile to Babylon. And yet there's hope. In chapter 30, we're given hope of a new covenant. Something's going to happen at some point after the exile, whereby the hearts of God's peoples are going to be changed. So that they desire to obey this law, so that they want to obey this law so they choose life instead of death. And uh, this sort of tees up really what we're going to see uh, in the new covenant when we finally hit Ezekiel. We had this morning the reading in Ezekiel 36, didn't we? The promise of new hearts, washed hearts. That's what God promises um, in uh, anticipatory form here, chapter 30. OK, we're done. The question is, why should you care about the Levitical covenant? Because previously, probably most of us didn't care about it. It didn't factor much into our, into our Christian life. Why should you care about the Levitical covenants? Well, I want you to see you desperately, desperately need a mediator. You really do. Turn with me to chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians in the New Testament. I mentioned at the beginning how we're in a very similar position to, to those in the wilderness. We're in this in between place, aren't we? We're not yet, we are saved, but we're not yet saved. And um, Paul recaps the, the numbers generation and he, he offers a warning to Christians. Just look at, we'll just look at the first five verses here. Uh, Paul writes, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God does not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. He's offering a warning to this church because this church thought, hey, we got we got baptism. Hey, we have the Lord's Supper. Uh, it doesn't really matter how we live now, does it? And it's like, no, you need to learn the lesson of the wilderness generation. Um, there is a danger for us, friends, that we think because we're saved by grace, it doesn't matter how we live. Uh, I've, I've been baptized. Oh, I come to the Lord's Supper. Uh, your repentance matters. It really does we desperately need a mediator who's someone who's going to go in between us and God and the reason why the levitical covenant matters is because of course Jesus is not just our king he is our great high priest the problem is Jesus is not of the tribe of levi is he instead he's of the tribe of judah which is the kingly tribe and that's why the book of Hebrews has two chapters, uh, chapters 7 and 8, basically on, on explaining this problem. Because pro- God promised there will always be a priest to intercede for his people. Always. And Jesus is, of course, the fulfillment of that. And yet he is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. We won't go into that now. But essentially he's a priest um, who, who doesn't belong to the usual line of things. He, 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 come, he has no um, genealogy. He comes out of nowhere, if you like unlike the Levitical priesthood, but Jesus is a better high priest. He is a greater high priest because he's forever able to intercede for us. Uh, so look at verse chapter 7, Hebrews 7 and verse 11. It says this, If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? And he goes on to make that case. So there you see, Jesus is our great high priest. And it's because of Phinehas that Jesus is our great high priest. That's why you should care about the Levitical covenant. Now you know. And in a moment's time, we're going to sing of that great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives to plead for me. Let's have one last Q&A. The nation of priests have priests and um, how does that map across to the New Testament where again the church is a, is a holy priesthood and, and a plurality of priesthood, priesthood and yet Jesus is the one. Who, how do we understand that? Good, Really good question. Um, yes. Uh, and you remember uh, in the Abrahamic covenant part of the reason why all, all the boys were circumcised was in part to signify how the whole nation were priests because in Egypt only the only the priests uh, would have been circumcised. So the fact that everyone, all the men at least, are circumcised shows that we as a whole nation have a job to mediate to the nations, to mediate God's blessings to the nations, to extend God's holiness. I think what Exodus and Judah show us is that I- even God's people, if they are to be successful priests to the nations, to extend God's blessing and mediate for them, they too need a priesthood. They too need forgiveness. They too need sacrifice uh, to do just that. Come to the New Testament. Yeah, the whole church are priests. Please never call me a priest or refer to me as a priest. I'm not. Um, I'm a presbyter. I'm not a priest. Um, and uh, but because Jesus is our great high priest, as we've just seen, he ever lives to intercede for, for us. But that means we as a church, our job is to intercede to the nations in, in Balaam, um, to, to be a priest to, to them. But, but I'm nowhere in the New Testament church leaders ever called priests or described in priestly language. Um, that's a much, much, much more recent invention and an aberration which came in the medieval church. Yeah, very important. So Lydia's question, is there significance in, in, in the different types of covenant that are being cut? Um, if I could pull up another diagram in another um, in another document, I can probably show you more clearly this uh Here we go. It's fair to say Christians have understood covenant theology in different ways uh, over, over the centuries. This is the traditional reformed ex- explanation of all the different covenants. This guy, a guy called um, O'Palmer Robertson uh, sort of came up with this diagram. And it, it, the traditional argument is all the, all the covenants just get bigger and better as they go on. All of them have elements of grace in um, and all of them have elements of, of conditionality in them. And... Um, but it's all—it's all—they're univ- all sort of of a of a type, um, and that's that's sort of the reform position. So that's from Calvin. That, I'm going quite quote but but from Calvin's theology, that that's that that's that argument. Um, those those more Baptist line like to over like to emphasise the discontinuity between old and new, between law and gospel. And so you'd have a, a diagram like this, sort of um, where it, it's it's, it's, more, it's stressing the discontinuity. And I won't go into that there. So discontinuity stressed. Continuity stressed. What I'm trying to do in this diagram is, is, is show you there's massive continuity, but clearly there are different types of covenant. And um, and I think you see that most clearly in Paul's writing, in, in Romans and Galatians, how he speaks of the law or how he speaks of the, the Adamic covenant. It's clearly a different type. Um, why we recognize why why we recognize the Adamic and the Mosaic as different types of covenant is because the, the structure of them is very different. So as Indiana Jones types have dug up more of the Middle East, and we're finding more little cuneiform tablets all over the place. We're understanding more and more about um, ancient Near Eastern treaties, and we're able to see similarities to the treaties, the covenants we read about in the Bible. So, um, what you see in, in Genesis 3 and what you see in, uh, in Deuteronomy 27 28 is, is what's called a suzerain vassal treaty, because in the ancient Near East, very similar treaties were made between a king and, and his vassals, his servants. He uh, says, here you go, I'm going to bless you, but you better obey me to stay in. That's a sort of, the, it's, it's a type, it's a, a familiar formula. Whereas the others follow a more royal grant, just a, a, a free gift in response to um, a great merited action. So those are the differences between. Does that kind of answer your question? I Yes, were you here last week? Yes. Okay, cool. Um, so, um, so ladies, follow up is, surely the Mosaic Covenant seems like a regression um, you know, it was all going great with the Abraham Covenant. Why can't we just stick with that? Um, Paul makes the case in Romans, there's a, why was the law added? <laughs> you know, well, why why don't we just stick? And, and the law was added to show um, the need, to show Israel that the problem of sin, basically, and to, to highlight human sinfulness in order that they might see they need a saviour. And so this law is a national covenant that the Mosaic Covenant was given to Israel. And so if you look at Romans 3, you just turn there with me. We looked at this last time. Um, it's a really good question. You might know if Romans basically spends three chapters explaining how the whole world is guilty, Jew and Gentile. Um, why is that? Chapter three, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, the Mosaic covenant, it says to those who are under the law, Jews, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So, I think God's purpose in giving His people the law is remember, we saw last time, it's a good thing. God reveals His good character, it's a blessing. But it doesn't have the power to save because God's people don't have the ability to keep the law because their hearts aren't yet circumcised, their hearts aren't yet changed. So what does the law do? It shows us human sinfulness, it, it drives us to a saviour. Um, you could also say it restrains human evil. Um, law is better than anarchy and, and law is always a good thing. Here's my, um, my summary. Brilliant memory, thank you so much. Ollie's just reminded me of something very clever I said two years ago when I said this. <laughs> And um, which is that when God's people were in exile, why? Because they broke the law. What, where was the locus of their hope? Did they look back and go, oh, we just need to up our game a bit, lads. We just need to do the law a bit better. And then, then we find, no, never, never did the exilic literature do they look back to the law. And we saw that in, in Jeremiah 33. Uh, this is what the Lord says. If you can break my covenant with day and night, yada, yada, yada. Then my covenant with David, my servant can be broken. My covenant with Levi can be broken and my covenant uh, with Abraham can be broken. Oh, that's all the Royal Grant Covenants. <laughs> doesn't mention Moses. Doesn't mention Adam. Um, because they're different types. Thank you. That's really helpful. Yeah. Why have we never heard of Phineas and the Levitical Covenant before? Um, I think... Because we probably if hands off if you did Sunday school as a child. Okay. Hands off to those of you who teach children here at our Sunday school or have done in the past. Okay. How would you explain the story of Phineas to to my daughter Chloe, who's seven-year-old, without making her want to cry? Okay, right, children. Um, we've got <laughs> there's a big orgy. Okay, oh, how do I explain that? Um, and and then Phineas came along and pinned them together, which is ironic because they were yoking themselves. To, you get it, kids? And um, that might be one part of it. It's, it's, it's quite an adult story. Um, another reason why is because I don't think we do books like Numbers. We don't do the hard books with kids. And we should do. Um, um, but, yeah, I, I think it's constantly referred to. You know, we saw it in Jeremiah 33. You see it in Malachi 2. You see it in the New Testament. It's an important covenant. Yeah, yeah, it could be it. Johnny's point is though we struggle with the category of priesthood because we're nervous of Roman, becoming Roman Catholics or something. Yeah, maybe that's it. Yeah, what makes Phineas so special? Because it, um, Morgan's point is it's not like he's the first guy to stop a plague, um, he's not the first Levite to, to wield God's justice for him and to guard God's sanctuary, um, which is what. So, why, you know, what is it that extraordinary? Um, perhaps. My punt at that is um, what God says of him is uh, in uh, chapter 25. Um, uh, he and his descendants will have a covenant of lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honour of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. Uh, perhaps the, I don't think it's ever got as bad as Numbers 25 in terms of their idolatry. Um, I, I think it, it is worse definitely than the golden calf incident because um gone calves says obviously they're bound down to, a, to an idol but they're saying this is the lord this is yahweh these idol is yahweh and um here it's it's a, you know they're literally yoking themselves to another god this is uh, this is the real depths they've abandoned the lord altogether and they've abandoned the the, the, the law obviously adultery is going on and um yeah i th- i think he, he's it seems as if everyone's doing it <laughs> have and, and Phineas is the dude who he stops it yeah, that by my punt, but I don't really know. Yeah. Good. I look forward to hearing the Sunday School series in numbers um, uh, coming up. Let me pray and then I'll hand over. Our Father God, thank you so much for our great host priest, whose name is love, who ever lives to intercede for us. Uh, thank you, Lord, for uh, Phineas' zeal. Thank you, Lord, that you have called us to be a nation of priests, um, to, meet, to be holy and to mediate your holiness to those around us. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name. Amen.